After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and this week, I'm talking to documentarian Matt Gallagher about his film, Prey, spelled P-R-E-Y. A quick content warning before we start. This episode deals with a number of difficult subjects, including sexual abuse survivors, allegations of abuse within the church, child abuse, and general injustices. Prey focuses on priest hunter lawyer Rob Talek and two sexual abuse survivors as they go head-to-head against the Catholic Church in a civil lawsuit. It's a deeply challenging subject, but it's beautifully handled, and this film never feels exploitative. It instead feels compassionate, insightful, and thoughtful. The film won two awards at the 2019 Hot Docs Film Festival, the Rogers Audience Award for Best Canadian Documentary, and the Directors Guild of Canada's Special Jury Prize for Best Canadian Feature Documentary. The film will be streaming soon on TVO's website at tvo.org documentaries, so you can see it and a number of other great documentaries for free. Thank you, taxpayers. Here's my talk with Matt Gallagher. You wanted to make this for 15 years. Why now? How did it all happen? This is one of those films that's sort of been on my plate for 15 years. And it's because because I didn't know how to tell it. And, and I, I didn't necessarily want to do this documentary. Um, but my wife is a producer, Cornelia Principe. And, and so we talk about our next project constantly over dinner and vacations. And whenever we're like sort of not working, we're always wondering what the next thing is. And and so Cornelia was always, well, well, like, what about that one about the clergy thing? It's something that I didn't know how to tell the story on, until uh, I sort of reached out to a, a childhood friend of mine who was in the news around 2010, and he was one of the abuse survivors. And he was from Windsor, Ontario, where I grew up. I hadn't spoken to Patrick in 35, 40 years, probably. So I called him and I, and I said, Patrick, I'm, I'm thinking of doing a documentary. I'm not sure what the story is. I know that you've already been through this with the church and, and the criminal case and the civil case. And I thought his story was done. And, and so he invited me over and we chatted for three or four or five hours. And, and he introduced me to this whole other world that I didn't know anything about. And it's the world of the civil action, about, about suing the church in court. And he introduced me to his lawyer at the time was was a guy named Rob Talek, who's in the film, and, and he's known as the priest hunter. And so as soon as as soon as I heard this idea of this priest hunting lawyer who makes a living suing the church and representing these victims of clergy abuse, I thought to myself, okay, there's 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 an active story there. And I was always looking for an active story. I I didn't want to do a documentary on abuse allegations and things from decades before without having an active component to the documentary. Now, at this point, how much was sort of uncovered as you went along and how much did you already have in your previous research? Well, what I knew from this one case of this Father Marshall, who was an abuser, I knew that he abused for four decades all over Canada and North America. I knew that the church moved him around over and over again. Every time there was an abuse allegation, he got moved to a new community. I knew that he was convicted. He got convicted in, in a court in a, in a Canadian court, and he, and he got sentenced to jail. I knew that. And then I knew he got out of jail, and he died shortly thereafter. But uh, but other things, you think the story would be dead there, but it's not because 
what happened next is I started to understand that that this priest hunting lawyer, Rob Talek, he journeys through the country and, and, and he represents these victims. And so he started to introduced me to box loads of evidence talking about about this priest and what he did and and he also introduced me to his client Rod McLeod who's in the film and Rod is 68 69 years old he was taking the church to court on this and now normally what happens in these civil suits 99% of the time is the church puts these survivors and their lawyers through four or five years of litigation and arbitration and, you know, depositions and a lot of, you know, it's very difficult to get the church to sort of uh, admit that they did something bad and, and pay up. So so the church's playbook is, is to really test the victims. And the good thing about this documentary is why this documentary happened and why this documentary worked is because we had a victim who didn't take their settlements, who, who, who said to himself, I'm, I'm taking this to court and I'm going to have my day and I'm going to have my say. I don't care if you're going to offer me a million dollars. I'm taking this to court because I want what you did known to the public. Now, this is a topic for documentary that unfortunately is reasonably common. Uh, you've got Deliver Us from Evil back in 2006, The Keepers, which just came out on Netflix. There's a documentary that came out in May that's looking like it might take down the right wing of the Polish government called Tell No One. What do you think the effect of these documentaries has and what sort of resonance do you think it should maintain? I've seen all the films that, that you just mentioned. I think as these films are coming out, around the world, it's getting harder for the church to ignore it and, hard, and harder for the church to deal with it. I mean, I approached this documentary with an open mind. I had no idea, you know, I read what I read in the news, the same news that uh, you probably read, but it, it was just like, I knew there was a problem and I knew that they they were resisting change and all those things. And, and then you hear some Pope speak or a Bishop speak and, and, you know, for the lay person, I think we sort of believe what they say too much. And, and, Often what they say isn't what they're doing. I mean, it's it's like there's a lot of nice words floating around, but there's not a lot of action happening. The more stories that happen, the more stories get out there in the public, you're going to start to have to see the church evolve into some sort of concrete action. Because after what I've learned making this documentary, I'm actually surprised that the church still exists. If that was an institution, chemical company or a paint company or a uh, you know, some company that made pharmaceuticals like the like the makers of Oxycontin. I mean, we as the public, we see that they've done wrong and we take quick action and we we hammer those companies into the ground, often to the point of bankruptcy. It's I mean, the fact that the church is still standing is a surprise to me. I think I think they've achieved that by doing these settlements and by and by dealing with victims like this. It's 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 something in their DNA that that like this is how they deal with problems. And I'm just hoping that that's going to change at some point. Something that is different about your documentary that I haven't seen in any of the other documentaries as addressed is the concept of financial settlement. And the idea of $175,000 in exchange for a ruined life is just mind-boggling to me. Um, and even attributing a number to someone's pain. Uh, in the documentary, of course, there's mock trials with juries where they're asking them, how much do you think this person's pain and suffering is worth based on the story they told you and how empathetic you are? And uh, that's not really something we think about as a society of how do you put a number on someone's pain? And in that case, what good does the money do if this person is irreparably damaged? What does the money do? I mean, that was something that was I was originally interested in. My childhood friend who's in the documentary who sort of triggered the making of this film, I was curious about his story because Patrick, as a survivor of abuse, he did everything right. He was abused as a young teenager. 
He kept it to himself for decades until finally he he had the courage to come forward and uh, lay a charge. And the, and the police were resistant to lay a charge at first, but then but then he pushed back and, and, and he got the police to lay a charge. And then as soon as that one charge was laid against this priest who had no criminal charges to his name at that point, it started an avalanche of other victims coming forward saying, that priest abused me as well. And so within a short time, there was 20 more victims of this one priest that's in my film. And Patrick, you know, Patrick participated in the criminal prosecution. He he got the priest convicted along with these uh, 20 other victims. As soon as uh, the priest got out of jail, he launched a civil suit and Patrick got a, a sizable settlement, I think $400,000. And I thought that was the end of Patrick's story because I naively thought that because he's done everything right and pushed this to the max and, and dealt with his demons and his and made the church acknowledge his pain, uh, that he would be happy, but he was not. Patrick is still, he's 51 years old and, and he's still going through this shit. When I started this documentary, I liked that concept. I liked the concept of how do we quantify abuse? How do, how, how do we come up with that number? And in the, in the trial, I mean, it's not in the documentary, but there was a forensic uh, accountant. And, and what she does is, is she basically says, this is what I think the abuse is worth. And she calculates lost income and and all those other things. And, and so I was chasing this sort of storyline of how do we quantify abuse? I naively thought that that was going to be a big part of the story, but it turns out, I mean, I've, I've talked to dozens of, of survivors and victims throughout the filming of this. The money just doesn't make a lick of difference to these people. You know, there's, there's a, there's a woman uh, who I interviewed, uh, Brenda Brunel. She, she, she now heads up a survivors network, but she, but she was abused as a young girl. And, and she got a settlement. I forget what the settlement was, a couple hundred thousand dollars or something like that. And she she basically took that money and she built her dream kitchen. You know, all, all the sort of stuff she's always wanted in her house. She had this home and she built this dream kitchen uh, thinking uh, that, that she's going to take that money and put it to good use. And she sold the house shortly after. She she can't look at the kitchen. And I've heard of other people got their settlement and it's sitting in the bank somewhere. They haven't touched it. The common denominator there is I keep on hearing that that the money doesn't help and it doesn't it doesn't make a difference. What what I think a lot of survivors are looking for is more than an apology. They're looking for concrete action about how you know they they like want to know that the people who were in power at the church then and now. Um, call out their colleagues and say, listen, we knew this and here's a list and, and we're going to deal with this and we're going to, but that's, but that's not what's going on. And in, 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 instead you have uh, people in the church who are, who are still trying to, for the, for the most part to keep this under wraps. And you're dealing with a lot of people too, who have just such an unending faith that they don't believe these people are human, that they would be capable of this kind of action, that they would cover things up. But uh, you very smartly also have someone from the church who is making comments, who is a friend of Father Hodgson, who who apparently has unlimited compassion for him and perhaps not so much compassion for the victims or what the victims are asking for. And that's a very interesting point of view and counterpoint. I was always interested in talking to Father Katulski. Father, Father Katulski is the spokesman for the Bazillion Order. Um, and uh, I think he's got the worst job in the church, but his job is to deal with all the courts and all the settlements and all the victims. And so he, he goes to every trial. He attends meetings with victims. He he tries to work out a deal. He, I mean, his job is is basically to deal with all the abuse that the that the Brazilians have caused. And when I first met 
Father Kotelski. I, I, I saw him in court. I, he sat on the defense side uh, with his two lawyers who were fighting the victim in court. And it was very easy to sort of dislike him immediately. He didn't say much. He just sat there. But then he testified and he said really good things. I mean, he, he, he said, listen, we're we we know this is a problem and we and we and we know we have to deal with this and i mean i'm paraphrasing everything he said in court but i got the impression of of a man who's progressive and and cares for the survivors and wanted to do the right thing and so i reached out to him the producer cornelia principe and myself we we met with him and his colleagues at at the saint mike's down in toronto here and, and we sort of said listen we were working on a documentary here and we didn't approach him until after after the three-week court happened and I just wanted to find out more about him. I mean, I know that he's an honorable man, and I know that he didn't enter the seminary to become a priest to have this job, but here he is, he's got this job. And somebody at the church has to do it. And so I I, I wanted to hear more from him. And, and in the film, he said, we interviewed him months after we finished uh, filming at the uh, trial, and he said some powerful things. I mean, he said stuff that I could not disagree with, you know, and I'm paraphrasing again, but he would say things like Father Marshall was, you know, a pedophile, but we had, I mean, what 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 are we going to do with him? We we couldn't toss him out on the street. He is our brother. We cannot toss our brother out on the street, so we have to deal with him. And I identify with that. I mean, I mean that 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 like resonates with me. I mean, he's right. I mean, we can't throw humans out. And then when the verdict came in, he's I interviewed him about the two point five million dollars that that was the verdict in in the Rod's trial, and and he said it it brings me to a, some profound sadness knowing that money doesn't fix this. And he's right. You know, he's got a tough job. I had one problem in his interview, and that was after all his testimony. And after everything he knew about Rod's story, him and his colleagues at the Bazillion Order appealed the verdict. When I learned of the appeal, as a guy who sat in that court and heard all the testimony and, and was following the trial, I thought that there was no way the church was going to appeal. I, I thought that the church was going to see this, you know, this 2.5 award and see it as something that needs to be done. And this is what we need to do to sort of let this victim go on and, and heal. And let's let's close the books on this. And the appeal broke my heart. It just made me get a little bit cynical. And that when, when we put that in the film, you could, you know, and that plays in an audience, you can hear the audience groan and the audience is groaning because, you know, I groaned as well when I heard it. It was just, it was tough to acknowledge the appeal with the man who's responsible for being the spokesperson for the church. It's such a fascinating story, especially in the fact that you're dealing with the idea of they believe in a higher power, They and I'm generalizing, there's an idea of a higher power and that uh, there's going to be judgment that happens later on and how much authority can you can you give to earthly authority of who's allowed to say who does what and who does wrong. And we can't throw our brother out. We have to deal with this. But then there's just such an investment in money. And this very, you know, fairly modern concept of uh, what things are worth and value in that way, as opposed to the more abstract concept of what is the value of a human being. And I think that's what just boggles my mind, the way the value seems to be placed in different ways. The more stories I hear, I just, I actually don't have an answer to, to like how we fix this or how we deal with things. So, so I empathize with the church. I also empathize with the victims. It's something that is... 
beyond my pay grades, sort of trying to figure that out. I, I know that survivors I talk to uh, have different views on that. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, I guess I'm not there yet. You're able to tell this one precise story through this narrative. Of course, I have to ask, how challenging was it to stay on track with narrative and very specific story points when you're dealing with something so devastating and uh, very specific and very graphic and obviously very emotional? I've done a bunch of films and often when we're making these documentaries, we're asking people to talk about things that they don't necessarily want to talk to. And often they're reluctant to talk about, like my last film was called How to Prepare for Prison. And it was about people facing incarceration for the first time. So I followed the stories of a handful of people who were caught doing something and were convicted in a court and they were about to go to jail. And so I followed them for the last two months of freedom before they went to jail. So when you're approaching a story like that, it's you're, you're talking to people who are ashamed and embarrassed. These aren't career criminals. These are people like you and me who sort of made a mistake and are going to jail for two or three or four or five years. It's a, It was difficult to draw those people out and to have them tell their story because they have to trust me. And, and, and there's always that element of why on earth would I want to tell that story to a public audience? Um, this film was different. It was hard to hear these stories of abuse and 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 shame and, and secrets that just went on for decades. So I listened to their stories and they told their stories, but these people want to talk about it. I mean, that's the, this, is the, this is the one surprising thing for me is that, is that everyone in the documentary, including and especially Rod, the main character, who had kept this for, you know, secret for decades. I, I, think, I think the time is now for people to sort of say, I've been holding on to this for so long and I shouldn't be ashamed of this. It's always hard to hear these stories, but, but the men and women who told me these stories didn't hold anything back. They, they were ready to talk about it. And, and they want the public to know and they want the church to know. And, and they want their family to know. I mean, often, I mean, you hear this over and over again from survivors, but, and this isn't true in every family's uh, story of survivors, but, but often their families wouldn't even believe them. <laughs> you know, I can't imagine what it's like to go through that sort of horrific abuse and then not have the people closest to you actually believe that it happened. I mean, it's funny. I, 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 I was at the appeal just a few weeks ago, back in September, and the priest hunter lawyer was there, Rob Talek, and, and we were talking over a coffee break uh, during the court session. I mean, he's done over 400-something cases where he's filed suit against the church, and so he knows every priest that's been charged, and, and he started to talk about this one priest, and his name was Father Joe Nelligan, and I, and I quickly <laughs> realized that not only do I know Father Joe Nelligan, uh, who's now deceased, but I know him very well. He was our, very close to our family. There's pictures of him on my family wall, and we had no idea that he was an abuser. I knew I was going to tell my family about it because, especially after hearing uh, stories from survivors, I would never keep that a secret from anyone anymore. I think people need to talk about this. For the first time, I thought to myself, my mother may not believe me. She knew that priests is better than I did. And, and, and they were they were family friends. They would go on vacation together and stuff and with with like my dad and other couples and stuff. But I did tell my mom and she actually believed it. So I mean, I think I think things are changing. But for the first time, I, I think I understood that, you know, some people aren't ready to accept these things, because I've heard that story over and over again from survivors who finally come forward is that 
is that my is, is that my brother and sisters didn't believe me or my parents didn't believe me, you know. When it comes to releasing the film for the general populace, I mean, this is going to be on TVO and uh, and through other venues. How do you think people will receive this and how do you think they'll watch it? Will it find the audiences that need to find it, especially given how graphic it is? It's getting received really well. I mean, we uh, you know, we're doing a bit of a festival run right now and and we're getting packed audiences and and for the survivors who come and, and who sit in the audience and they usually come up for a question and answer period after the film. But I think the story is really resonating with the audience. I think, you know, I mean, we don't go through any screenings without somebody putting up their hand and saying, what can I do? And so I think that these stories are hard to hear. If you really watch the film and you look at the stories we tell, we really don't get into the abuse that much because it's almost like, it's almost like the stories of abuse have developed. They're so common. Everyone knows the story of the church and the moving the priest around and the, and the stories of abuse because it's in the newspaper for the last 10 years. I mean, it, it's, it's in the news like almost every night. And and so and so that allowed me when we were making the film to to develop a bit of a shorthand. Like you don't need to tell those stories. Our film was about a man trying to get the church to acknowledge the abuse. It wasn't even so much about the abuse, but to make the film Prey in 2019 was something that, you know, we could rely on all the sort of stories that have already happened for the last 15, 20 years. So it, it was it was, a, it was an interesting edit. This film is just so, it, it's very clinical almost in a way, the way you've constructed it, because you're more dealing with the idea of what is a civil case? How does this work? How does this work in the case of a, a, a criminal element? And you have one particular piece of evidence that you're, you use in the film that should have just been the open and shut case, which was, and then of course the appeal happened for some reason. When you got that piece of evidence and and that, that announcement of a full statement of guilt. What was that like both in the courtroom and what was that like for your film? Before it went to the courtroom, I knew it existed. Um, but before it was shown in the courtroom, you know, we couldn't show it. We, it, it, it wasn't available to the public. But what it was, it was a 90-minute piece of videotape, a 90-minute confession tape. And just, just before... Or just after the uh, the convicted priest got out of jail, he was in his late 80s and he was uh, getting old. And he, I, th- I think he had uh, some very serious medical medical condition. But Rob Talek, the priest hunting lawyer, he moved to have a deposition done with this priest. So it was a court ordered deposition where where the lawyers got to question this man for 90 minutes. And you would think that you would expect a certain quality coming from that tape. But I think I think what happened is that you had this priest who was on death's door. He had already been convicted. He couldn't go back to jail. They, 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 they weren't going to convict him of other crimes. And, and so I think he felt free and sort of just letting it all out there. He basically chronicled four years of abuse and he did it on videotape. And I remember watching that videotape in the court makes you wonder why we're even at court at this point. But what I wanted to do, what I was certain that I wanted to do is is to secure that piece of videotape for the documentary. And I wanted people to know that uh, this is what abuse looks like. And this is how horrible it was. Because beyond the facts of, of the actual abuse of these children, the priest who was on his deathbed almost, he, he basically gave this dead man's confession and he told the lawyers that that he had tried to identify his abuse with his spiritual advisors and they did nothing. And so it became uh, not just a chronicle of abuse, but a chronicle of the institutional take on this and the institutional abuse of, of not doing anything 
I think that was the hardest part for the jury and, and the people in the gallery like myself to to uh, watch. Well, thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I just have uh, two more quick questions that I ask all of my guests. The first one is, do you have a Canadian film, be it documentary or fiction, that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Well, I mean, I think my favorite Canadian film has, you know, at least for the last little while, has been Leolo, the uh, Quebecois film. It's something that I think everyone should watch. It, it, it's also a tough watch, but uh, it's a beautiful film. Uh, and then the second question I have is, what do you think Canada needs more of in order to be able to support its artists and its filmmakers? It's a tough slog getting a, a film off the ground and getting a film, you know, getting a documentary greenlit. So, yeah, it's it would be great to have loads of money. I don't think that's going to happen. So. Uh, we'll just have to keep on doing what we can do to get those stories out there. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.